You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Andrew. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information, whether you have been practicing national security law for years, are a journalist trying to understand the law, or a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual review conference on November 1st and 2nd to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. And we're proud to be both sober and unbiased. (laughs) So let's get started. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on our Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Today we continue our exploration of private national security law with Megan Stiefel, founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative, director for international cyber policy at the National Security Council, where she was former director, rather, uh, where she was responsible for expanding the Obama administration's cybersecurity policy abroad, and was connected with internet governance, bilateral and multilateral engagement and capacity building. And Megan, I am so glad you came in to talk to us. Thank you all for having me very much. I'm excited to be here. Well, Megan, we invited you here today on purpose to talk about a recent paper that you've authored, which we're going to hyperlink for our listeners. It's entitled, Securing the Modern Economy, Pause After the Word Economy, Transforming Cybersecurity Through Sustainability. Now, we've had a dizzying 36 months in cybersecurity, Megan. Let's just briefly recap how our country has been the victim of what, in any other era, might have been called hundreds of Sputnik moments, a term used to describe America's shock at the advancement of a Soviet rocket into space before the United States could launch. I think that's an apt analogy, Elisa. And in fact, I think the other piece of that analogy that is so useful is we're seeing a lot of you have to see it to believe it in cybersecurity. You have to be the victim of a breach. You have to have your intellectual property uh, compromised before you wake up and smell the roses, as they were. So I know you said 36 months. But if I may, I might want to roll the clock back a little bit further. Absolutely. So as I was thinking about our conversation the other day, I went digging through um, the DNI's testimony from the past couple of years. And you've probably been the victim of the experience of having to go through the LRM process, which is the legislative review memorandum or something. Anyways, interagency consultation on congressional testimony. And so I had remembered over those many years looking at where cyber fell in the DNI's threat assessment to Congress. 
In 2011, that's all as far as back as I went, it appeared on page 26. Okay. I think it was roughly 50-something pages. So halfway through, they started talking about cyber. In 2012, it made honorable mention in the introduction and then had its own section on page 6. This year, of course, it is first on the list. The past 36 months, we've seen uh, issues around what I think the Department Department of Justice is calling malign foreign influence operations, particularly in connection with uh, the 2016 elections. There's also been the issue of fake news that arose during the elections. And since then, um, we've seen a growing number of botnets uh, with increasing um, velocity, bandwidth. And I'm, like. I'm assuming, if I may interrupt briefly, that our listeners know what a botnet is, which is a robot, basically, that... It's a collection of zombie computers, basically. So there, there is a bot herder who is the... He or she basically goes out and collects a bunch of... Connects to a bunch of computers and compromises them in a way that they then become the robot zombies of... Uh, the bot herder, and then directs those uh, computers to, among other things, conduct a distributed denial of service attack against a website, which for those listeners who aren't familiar with DDoS, think about when you couldn't access Twitter or Netflix from the East Coast about two summers ago this time. (laughs) That was the result of a DDoS. Um, So we've had hacks of social media. We've had email accounts compromised, again, on the Wayback Machine, uh, listeners may or may not be aware that in 2009, Google was uh, compromised as a result of what we most people think was Chinese um, activity seeking to, among other things, uh, try to compromise intellectual property. So looking at Google's um, IP. Wow. That was the result of a, what we call an O-Day attack. And that was a compromise in the Internet Explorer web browser that allowed for that to happen. 2011, RSA, another big company. Again, you have to see it to believe it. Um, And people may not even even been aware if they were personally affected by that one in particular. Right. Uh, Yahoo, most users remember, most listeners probably remember, happened in 14 but wasn't disclosed until 16. Hmm. So one of the things I think that I suspect will be the focus of our conversation this evening is the idea, or not the idea, but the reality that a lot of, we're mostly concerned about attacks from nation states. The North Koreans, the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese have been behind most of the attacks that, events that we just talked about. Um, But of course... We've also had um, the compromise of Target was one that, that's not a nation state or not, I think, directly associated to a nation state um, in the run-up of why we all need to care about cyber. Right, right, exactly. But a brief one that resulted in someone losing their job and, at the And top. I think, if I recall, the Target hack actually didn't necessarily come through a smart machine like a, a computer or a mainframe, but came through point-of-sale devices, which are relatively dumb. Uh, and I think we're... Uh, are we seeing a trend in kind of uh, vulnerabilities through what we might call dumb systems like a smart light bulb or a uh, washing machine? Yes. So I think Target, as I was quickly refreshing my memory, um, had a couple of compromises. They had compromised point-of-sale machines, but they also had the HVAC system was, the mm-hmm. pre- I think, one of the first. So that actually it sounds like probably wasn't a dumb machine. So I think one which of was, the... Which was networked uh, yes. in such a way so it could be controlled remotely. Yes. Uh, that uh, was the smartest thing to do, but there you go. I would, yes. We can get into that in a few <laughs> minutes. Um, I would prefer that things stay dumb, but that's not reality. So yeah. one of the things that I, I think we ought to be paying more attention to, and I'm not the person who came up with this, but a couple of f- smart colleagues have, have said the same thing to me and a number of other folks. Um, when we talk about cybersecurity, we often think about actions taken to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information, often also its authenticity. And what concerns me most, uh, or among the top things that concern me about IoT is we're now putting zillions of sensors around that 
are going to be collecting information, and the ability to affect the authenticity of that information can risk you know, personal privacy, but it can also risk things like, to build on the sustainability analogy, if you're making representations to investors that your, your product is green, to keep it simple, or you are working to um, do environmental conservation, but the information that you've collected has been compromised, in, in its collection or in its transition to your database where you use your AI system, um, artificial intelligence system to make sense of it, we need to be thinking much more holistically about this. Right. So that is, uh, to, to make another analogy, that would be like mixing something into a cake mix that was, say, a mortgage-backed derivative that then caused a bank to almost fail. Because um, once these things are into the uh, sort of system, if you will, the problem is there. And it's hard to disaggregate it or impossible. So let's return to your title for just a minute, Securing the Modern Economy. And I pointed out before to our listeners, I just want to mention that our economy, quite frankly, is key to our global primacy. Um, Our banking system, for example, is deemed so essential to our national security and well-being, it's actually considered critical infrastructure worthy of protection under things like the Homeland Security Act and some of the terrorism statutes. And you make an incredibly important point on this score, which is that 80 to 90% of all information and communications companies, meaning our big internet providers, our cellular phone companies, are privately owned. So have they done enough? Or have they given into the rush to market mentality and hired CEOs who don't understand these issues and won't spend what they need to in order to fix the problem? Uh, Are they even educating their stockholders well enough to sort of justify these expenditures? So I think um, there is a, an issue with the first-to-market or the first-to-market approach is, is, is challenging where we are in this Internet-connected internet part of our lives um, in, the, in the Internet era, uh, the, the Internet revolution. Some people say the fourth industrial revolution, fourth revolution. There, there is an issue with um, IC, uh, information and communications technologies or Internet service providers. And so we're thinking now about things, entities like NTT, which is the Japanese one, or AT&T or Deutsche Telekom, not just pick on our friends in the United States. Um, <laughs> there are certainly things that they have could, could have done better and can do better to reduce the, the risks presented by um, interconnected devices. But it's also the other piece of that is that there has to be a device on the that wants to communicate that's not communicating in a way that it's supposed to that also needs to be factored into the equation. So it's partially the rush to market, first to market of the smart toothbrush, I guess. I even heard that there's a smart toilet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that I think we can all do without. Uh, yes. Well, I think, I think you, you, you create an interesting bridge. I mean, I think it's, um, it's not just the CEOs, but it's also the board and the oversight. Yes. You mentioned investors, uh, Lisa, but... Um, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of these people, educated, highly educated, sophisticated decision makers in large enterprises, um, not and, and and then there's Joe Public, people who are pretty simple like me, um, and we think of the Internet of Things, and we think of simple things like my wash, like I mentioned, my washing machine or my garage door opener um, that I buy at Sears that is now connected as a smart device to my phone, um, and I think I wonder if you could help us. For those of us who are simple, explain why maybe the Internet of Things creates a, a, a new topology or a new expanded threat surface for cyber attacks in this emerging modern economy where all of the devices are connected. Sure. So as I mentioned, the, the idea of thinking both about the devices, the car, the toaster, 
the toothbrush, but also the industrial control systems. So our entities that, that manage dams, we may remember that a couple of summers ago, the Department of Justice indicted a number of Iranians for accessing a dam in New York. Um, so those, that's also an IoT device. It's just one that has, we might think that it has, accessing that device has more significant consequences, but that's not necessary. I mean, certainly physical consequences, but the challenge with IoT is that every device expands the attack surface, which then increases the opportunity for vulnerabilities to be exploited and threats, additional threats to come in. So we're thinking not only of the toaster, but also the car. If I can compromise a car, can I, a smart city, we have issue, that's also an internet of thing thing. So controlling the lights in a city, if a, if a, if a uh, nation state actor or a criminal or an erroneous uh, employee were to, uh, and sometimes we're own, we're, we are our own worst enemy, um, undertake a, an error, uh, we could have significant consequences that I think one of the issues that's key to cybersecurity is these continuing compromises of data and systems and networks erodes trust in the internet. So just to, to think about, um, I think we talked about 5G was in your question. I sort of lost. Well, yeah, I, lost I, your was kind of, I was no. going to say the, the, the threat surface expands. I mean, so kind of the proliferation of what we might think of as dumb right. smart devices like a garage door opener or the washing machine or the toilet or the toaster, right? Everything that gets connected, and, and I say dumb smart devices because as I understand it, a lot of those have factory settings, some of which are hardwired and unchangeable. And a smart hacker can hop on the internet and Google what the factory setting was for the garage door opener from company X. So uh, I guess my question is, uh, that attack surface, it starts to get very large. Yes. And what are those private sector entities doing to protect us from our dumb devices uh, being converted into zombies and shutting down vast swaths of the internet? The short answer is not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, the longer answer is, so I think there's two ways to think about, as, as I kind of said it a few minutes ago, there are actions that the internet service providers and communications carriers can undertake. Uh, in the context of botnets, there are actions like deploying something called BCP38, best common practice 38, and 84. This is ingress and egress filtering. So you see what's coming into your network and you check the, the incoming IP requests against a whitelist or a blacklist to say, Oh, that one we know is compromised because we all should be sharing information, right? Um, that's not uh, going to com compromise intelligence collection or law enforcement activities. But the encouragement here is for not just the government, but private sector entities to share information that helps kind of in this idea of uh, public health and kind of vaccination. So the ISPs can be doing additional things. They do offer some of these uh, capabilities to their enterprise customers, mm -hmm. but they aren't always given to the, to the consumer. And the justification that I often hear is, well, the consumer doesn't want to pay for it. Well, does the consumer know what it would get if it did pay for it? Would it actually cost more money? to? Could you just give it to the consumer? Wouldn't it be better for your network if you didn't have all this garbage on it? Wouldn't that cut down on calls to your uh, operation center, complaints, those kinds of things? But the other one, obviously, is the devices. So we need to have more secure devices. I was talking to a colleague uh, in the computer crime section who had said to me, we got to work on the devices. We can't keep having these, these devices that keep coming out. Um, so there is an effort underway to that the National Institute of Standards and Technology is slowly developing uh, to develop a cybersecurity, sorry, uh, sorry, an IoT capabilities, security capabilities baseline, which would say to bring a smart product to the market, you ought to do the following, should, ought, helpfully, please, because it's NIST, right? They can't tell them. They can tell the federal government, um, but they can't tell anybody else uh, to do the following things, things like undertake um, what they sometimes call sec dev ops or dev sec ops 
secure development operations. Um, so when you're developing code, make sure that you're thinking about security at the beginning, not the end, not hard coding default passwords, those kinds of things. So the, the baseline will hopefully, I'm not sure what the timeline on it is on it, but hopefully within the next year or so, we will begin to kind of the rising tide lifts all ships approach of getting less weak devices on the market. But the issue, the biggest, one of the biggest issues we have with this are the incentives. What's the incentive to the consumer to buy something that might cost more if it's more secure? What's the incentive for the corporation to build a more secure product? Because we have, there is a, I would argue, an insufficient amount of information about what the cost of cybersecurity really is. There's sort of this impression that, uh, as I've said in other places, you talk about cybersecurity and people are like, ugh, there's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And what we need to do is transform this to, hey, I'm going to invest in cybersecurity in the front end. It's going to save me money because I have not bolted it on at the end, not become, not had to wait to see it to believe it, um, and been the victim of a data breach or had my IP compromised, which then potentially tanked my stock value. So I think that was a long-winded answer to your question, but... Well, let's yeah. hope they have that. I do have a question, though, which is I, I do kind of wonder, um, or I have wondered, why it is that we don't have some sort of a security rating on things. And I guess part of the problem is, particularly with respect to anything that is sort of concrete, such as a device, that these vulnerabilities take time to discover. Um, and that's why you have hackers and uh, nation states poking around trying to figure out where the hole in those lines and lines and lines of code are. Would anything like that work? I think so. And I think it's so that's one of the uh, ideas that we're working on at Public Knowledge um, and a, a number of other folks. In fact, um, the Presidential Commission at the end of the prior administration, which was a bipartisan commission, recommended the development of um, a labeling scheme and an awareness campaign. Um, so there's an effort underway called the Digital Standard that is developed in part by Consumer Reports, which, you know, rates toasters and <laughs> cars and other things around safety. They're looking at, at developing what's called the digital standard, which would rate uh, products on, on a number of issues, including their security settings, but also their privacy. That, I think, is, is a useful process. I think, though, we need to boil it down to make it even more simple. So we need something the equivalent of an energy star. I know if I buy this, I'm going to be saving money on my energy bill. I know if I buy this, I'm going to be spending less time calling, trying to protect my getting identity theft protection because I've been the victim of another breach. But the issue is partially Moore's law that it, not only that the vulnerabilities take time to discover, but that the uh, processing speed doubles every two years. So by the time we set a standard or a certification baseline, not a baseline, but a certification set of requirements, they will be obsolete almost, you know, one of our colleagues has loved to say, would love to say, um, it's obsolete by the time it's printed by the FTC or some of the else who's making a rule. Now we can get into well, that given, in a second. Given the pace of the Fed reg process, right. that could be true. But I, I think we're there are, as I've said, a, a number of folks have, have talked about the utility of either this, the Presidential Commission talked about an Energy Star approach or the nutrition label. I think the nutrition label at this point, consumers aren't aware enough to make sense of more than one particular piece of it. Maybe that's something that we get to in a few years if we continue around this approach where consumers bear too much of the responsibility to keep things secure. But Short of that, I'd like to see a symbol that suggests that this company has been thoughtful in its development of the product, which means that they took security into account in developing it. And they so, have a- so a, Nicole is always reminding me that I'm kind of cheap, that I typically wouldn't spend the extra money on a device just because it might make the internet safer for somebody else, because it has a star. I mean, it, it, um, right, Nicole, you were, t- you were telling me this thing about the concept of the cheap Huawei phone. Yeah, so I guess the idea is even if we have some of these good actor companies who do invest in, in cybersecurity and try to create a really solid program, if not every company is doing that, 
consumers who either don't know, don't care, or are seeking specific features will still be able to get their hands on potentially compromised or easily compromised phones, routers, any kind of object. So there still will be these pockets of our networks and our markets that are still behind the times. Is there any way to block or kind of root out or any system for separating out the good and the bad there? My sense and understanding is that we're moving slowly in that direction. So um, there are efforts underway, or there actually already are devices, but again, they kind of sometimes cost consumers more. Um, Symantec, for example, I'm not endorsing Symantec, has a smart router that you can deploy in your home network that can, among other things, identify all the devices that are connecting to your network, which you'd be surprised. Probably there are a lot of families out there that didn't realize that something back there in the closet is somehow still on and still talking to the network. Um, it costs a little bit more than that. Right. And I guess, but I think and I guess that's I think kind that of my point is I might, or someone else, might not want to spend the extra right. 50 bucks on the Symantec smart router. So, are the, I mean, I guess what, how does the government or the legal system start to protect consumers from each other when they're buying cheap, unsafe appliances? I think there are a couple of ways. First of all, right now we are in a place, I think, yes, where sometimes the more secure product costs more. But we shouldn't, do we need to be in that place? It goes back to this question of there are insufficient metrics, I think, and what it costs, actually costs to build a more secure product. If we have companies that start to compete on security, I expect that we'll have a decrease in the cost of, of secure products because they'll want to be able to, you know, lower the cost so that you can get more buyers, purchasers. Um, I think, you know, I, I sense a... a, a can we regulate in your question, Andrew? We and I we think we can regulate cars. Why not? Right. For safety um, reasons. Unsafe at any speed. Right. No, right. no matter how many gigabits you download per second. <laughs> right. Um, so before we get to the regulation question or comment, um, I think there are also efforts underway by by the ISPs to. Uh, well, the ISPs already actually will tell you if you're the victim of a botnet, and they will basically tell you to clean up your machine and reconnect you. But guess what? Two days later, you're infected again, which means that we need to target, you know, the follow-up then would be, let's figure out how we can educate this person to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing that causes their computer to constantly be the victim of a, of a botnet attack. Are they getting spearfished? Are they, you know, visiting unsecure websites? Do so they just have, a friend of mine hates the phrase cyber hygiene. Um <laughs> But uh, so I think one thing that's also important to maybe throw out here, which I'm not a net neutrality expert, but the FCC had authority, had issued rulings in both the context of broadband, but also in spectrum, which would be mobile devices, um, around sort of baseline security requirements for providers of those services. Those were both broadband and, and the spectrum um, rulemaking process were overturned in the, by the current FCC. So the question becomes, if we're going to defer to the FTC, which is, I think, the current approach, theory, policy approach, does the FTC actually have authority to do anything about these things? And I would argue that the answer is no, particularly in light of LabMD and Spokio. But anyways. Um, uh, I think that's an excellent point, quite frankly. Uh, and I don't think we can attribute authorities, legal authorities, to agencies that they really don't have, quite frankly, as much as we may desire them to step into a space. Yeah, I think particularly, so the FCC, yes, I should say, the FCC would have preventative authority, right? You, you In order to maintain your license, you must be able to demonstrate that you have, you know, it may be garbage, but at least it's a requirement that you have, you think about security. With the FTC, we're waiting until something happens. So we're in the kind of see it to believe it zone as opposed to the 
let's secure better secure the internet so we maintain trust in the internet so we maintain economic growth and development broadcast democracy all of the great things that the internet has, has gotten us rather than waiting for yet another data breach to read in the headlines well i like your idea about the fcc i must say that their focus now would appear to be at least from the outside uh, getting phone service to everybody and making it affordable in the wake of the, you know, old whatever it was that motivated the sudden sort of shift in Belshazzar there, which is uh, the post Big Bell, I guess, breakup. Um, but it would be nice to see them sort of have the kind of authority to do the things that you suggest. It would make sense. Uh, I think on a lot of levels, and I, I frankly think, um, to your point, the very fact that everything is interconnected and frankly they only regulate a certain definition of telecoms which doesn't necessarily include things like certain kinds of VoIP service and internet service you know I think it's high time that we we modernized and perhaps extended their authority um, gave them the appropriate uh, money and funds in order to do the kinds of things that you think um, are possible but let me jump back for a minute Um, one of the things that I like about a good white paper is it it actually suggests solutions. Um, there are plenty of things that can identify problems, and quite frankly, I think, as far as an intellectual task goes, identifying a problem is, is fine. But I think what you've done here is you've actually made some suggestions that I hope very much people are looking at. There, it's a multi-dimensional approach. Um, and I'd like to start first by talking about who should begin to take responsibility for what is a um, not a looming threat, uh, but a threat that's fully realized even as we're sitting here today. So there is a kind of, in the telecom space it was, we're going to turn to the government to regulate the market. In this space, because of the fact that we have not just the telecoms providing services, but we have other private sector actors developing products to, to attach to these services, we have to look at what some people refer to as the multi-stakeholder approach, which would include government, industry, what we call civil society, so organizations like Public Knowledge, where I work, um, organizations like the Center for Democracy and Technology, organizations that basically try to advocate on behalf of consumer interests, but also academia, so the researchers who help go out and identify the vulnerabilities. Um, In this particular white paper, we talked about identifying actors, stakeholders who could take fairly straightforward, meaningful um, action that would make progress in this space. So the groups that we identified and we welcome additions or subtractions or shouting or applause on these groups are product manufacturers, so the entities that are making our smart toothbrush, um, enterprise network operators, so that could be um, the American Bar Association if they run their own network. It could be um, your pick your company. We were talking about some of the great five Fortune 500 companies in Andrew's home state. It could be Target if they were in their own network. Then we talked about civil society and then governments. There's also, I think, a role for, uh, when we did some feedback on this paper a couple weeks ago, someone identified that there's a role for um, funders um, because some of the uh, suggestions that the paper highlights and the others have highlighted really don't squarely fit within one of these stakeholder groups. It's not clearly an issue that the private sector would spend money on. It's not clearly an issue that the government would spend money on. We all need to spend money on it. So sometimes... Those opportunities don't come about until somebody like the Hewlett Foundation or others sort of step in and kind of seed germinate the seeds to make a thousand flowers bloom. So I can go into some of the specifics if we want well, uh, to. Well, let me applaud that. I have to say I think that's brilliant. And it, it's 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 like anything else. It's like funding any sort of public health effort. Uh, why wouldn't you mm-hmm. if you're a large foundation? That's That's an excellent point. Yes, do. Okay, um. <laughs> sure. So we've talked about – so I think on the on – the, um, Product manufacturer, there are 
we already talked about sort of DevSecOps or secure software development best practices. Those exist. These are so the list that that I came up with is uh, is not product is not does not endorse a particular company, but it talks about known best practices that were the FTC to come ex post facto to say what did you do? If I were in one of these categories, I would want to at least have done this list. And I don't think that this is genius. I think there's probably many other things, but this was kind of the the first, you know, the low-hanging fruit. Um, there's something called a software bill of materials, which you can think of as what steps did we take in, so basically sort of the follow-on to the secure development, um, software development practices is outlining sort of the shorthand or the longhand of what you did when you were developing the code. And actually, NTIA is running a process right now, a multi-stakeholder process on the viability of doing what they call the SBOM, the software bill of materials. Um I like so, that acronym. Yes. That works um, for me. There's also one of the challenges that we have is, as Andrew pointed out, I think we're getting away from the practice of default passwords, hard-coded passwords, but they are out there and there are devices that are have default passwords encoded and that can't be changed. Exactly. I think that's what I was getting at is, is not only that they're set with a default, but that it's not changeable mm-hmm. because they're hard-coded in um, to the hardware and you can't get them off of the internet of things. Right. You can't turn them into a brick for, for a number of reasons, um, both, I think, policy and legal reasons. But so looking at, as you're, as a, an entity who's a product manufacturer is developing a product, looking at the, the um, life cycle. So there's something that Cisco has been pushing through the, what's called the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force. This is a group that develops um, the protocols that we basically don't know anything about, but they bas- make the internet work. Um, so there is, they do what's called a request for comment that, that becomes the standard. And so they have, the IETF is, is working on something called the Manufacturer's Usage Description Specification, which says, you may, this product is designed to do X. You should not use it to do Y or Z because, among other things, that could create a security vulnerability, which the idea then is to say for, you know, the acquisitions department that may not know hooey about security, we can educate them to at least say, okay, please go out and buy a device that does X. Don't that we don't want a device that also does Y and Z. And this also presumes, of course, that your acquisitions folks are talking to your chief information security officer. So I'll jump to the enterprise network operators. Uh, so again, we talked about the software bill of materials. If you're running an enterprise, you want to know you ought to know what's connected to your enterprise. And when you connect things to your enterprise, you ought to ask for this software bill of materials from your providers. Right, just so don't make it the HVAC What machine. I mean to, to, well, I do, um, we say words like ought, and we're on the National Security Law podcast. Uh, I mean, I think we get sound to some of those. It seems to me that a lot of this conversation about cybersecurity and the law and the role of government um, may be reframing, although the modern economy is different, are we still reframing fundamental human values about where the boundaries of government lie and uh, what constitutes individual responsibility and what are the difference between things ought to do and that they have to do or face consequences. I hear the, it's not, you didn't say it, but I, it's in your mind, I think, right? Regulation? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I do. Because I, 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 um, the white paper is fascinating. You talk about a multidimensional approach. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, um, elaborate a little bit for the listener on Within that multidimensional approach, of course, there's an ought to mm-hmm. recommendation set. Um, but kind of what what do you what conclusions do you uh, come to with regard to what's the appropriate boundary for regulation or stand, you say standards on enforced standards or uh, enforced liability in the case of somebody uh, breaching their responsibility? It's something that it's like the million dollar question or the the I think the, there's 
uh, I'm not suggesting that you're doing this, but I think there is kind of, there has been in the past, or there in some circles there still is this desire to reach for the easy button, let's just regulate it. Well, what are you going to regulate? Because we I mean, that, about, that's not already regulated. If you've got or, a pacemaker or something, that or is litigate, regulated. Or litigated. And, yeah. and this is where I ask about um, the multidimensional approach. What is the role for the systems of justice on the criminal mm-hmm. side? Sure, regulate, but also uh, civil law. Is, is there a role for um, expanded liability for manufacturers or operators or ISPs when they're operating a topology that's unsafe? So the liability question, I think, um, Harvey, who's not here tonight, I, he and I talked briefly about this at a NIST panel a, a couple of months ago. There is, and I've, I've been participating in a number of these NIST, NIST National Institute for Standards and Technology workshops around um, the, what we oftentimes shorthand refer to as the botnet report, but the report that was directed by Executive Order 13800, which is this administration's cybersecurity executive order. Um, and one of the curious things that I heard at one of these NIST workshops, which was not spoken by someone at NIST, so let me be clear, mm-hmm. um, and it was a Chatham House, so I can't. I can't remember, but I also wouldn't say um, who said it was that a lot of information around potentially a lot of these civil suits are actually settled and the vulnerabilities that were exploited never make it back to the manufacturer to find out. So I think we, we are... For any, for just for, listen, for some sort of non-disclosure agreement as a sort of a contingency for the settlement and whatnot, it's not reported or just pure oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, there is interest from the, the Hill. I think Senator Warner is interested in looking, re-examining the liability regime or the absence thereof. Um, as I have said before, we are where we are because of the actions that we took, which has been great. We've got a fantastic interconnected platform that's riddled with vulnerability because we didn't subject those who produce these products and the software to liability. So maybe it's time that we said, okay, now that this is a viable economy, we know that we can develop gobs of products, maybe it's time to look back and say, okay, in certain circumstances, and I think um, Michael Daniel, my old boss, made this point, um, that I don't think the rush to liability sort of easy button everything is useful. We don't need to look at where it would be most meaningful. So is it in industrial control systems or is it in consumer devices? Is it in certain consumer devices? And who has the authority to, you know, if we're, civil suits are one thing, but it would, is there an opportunity for a different, an expanded role for the FTC? again, to take a more proactive approach as opposed to a reactive approach. So maybe that tackles part of it. But we welcome those who are interested in looking at the legislative, excuse me, the liability landscape to see where it might be really useful to think a little bit more broadly. We are going to end this episode here. Please join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, when we continue talking to Megan Stiefel about ways to integrate sustainable cybersecurity into government and more concrete solutions from her white paper. Remember, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences, and don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. And don't forget, every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.